Good evening or afternoon or whatever time it is for you, everyone. Um, it is Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature. Don't be surprised uh, when you don't see the same teacher in the seat. Venerable Children is um, in Korea right now, where she is attending a conference of um, international conference of bhikshunis or fully ordained nuns, looking at the uh, situation of nuns, past, present, and future, and has was invited to make a presentation about her work and uh, establishing Shabasti Abbey being a part of it. So it was a real honor. And so we'll be reviewing this week and maybe next week too uh, while she's away. So my assignment was to pick up wherever the last review was and who knows how long ago that was. Um, but I'll be picking up in chapter two, Revolving in Cyclic Existence, The Truth of Dukkha. And we'll review a little bit about how we got to that chapter. So to set our motivation tonight, start by just expanding our mind to be aware of the fact that this very moment, in all directions, not just of the earth, all directions of the universe, sentient beings are going about their lives doing whatever sentient beings do. And whatever realm of existence, whatever form their bodies have taken, all of them, right now, everyone, experiencing a life. And no matter what they're doing, what realm they exist in, what form their body has taken for this time, they are pursuing happiness and wishing to avoid any pain, any suffering whatsoever. Just think about that for a minute. And as they go about their lives doing things or not doing things, coming or going or being still, whatever is happening in their pursuit of happiness, most likely, almost pretty predictably, obscured by their ignorance and their wrong views and propelled by their afflictions, they're creating causes for more suffering and not the happiness that they seek. Or even if they're experiencing pleasurable feelings in this very moment, they're going to pass really quickly. And each one, just like us, will continue in samsara. Although, unlike us, like this, right this very minute, we have a slightly different condition in that 
Well, maybe it's a hugely different condition. And that in this life, this body, for this time, we've met the Buddha's teachings. We have a precious human life. We have an affinity for the Dharma. And we're chosen this time, right now, to learn the Buddha's teachings and put them into practice. So already, right now, we have an incredible benefit. We have an incredible um, opportunity in this cycle of existence. And so seeing that we are just like every other being in every other form in pursuing happiness, not wanting to suffer, still afflicted by our afflicted emotions and our karma, right now while we have this precious chance to think about cultivating loving kindness, cultivating our compassion, growing our wisdom, and with this topic tonight, deepening our understanding of the situation that we're in and how in this great compassion the Buddha taught us the methods to relieve ourselves of it. And how following his example of great compassion, we wish to grow our hearts so that we want to relieve every being of it, which we can only do by becoming Buddha. Purifying all of our negativities, cultivating all of our positive qualities, becoming Buddha ourselves in order to guide living beings out of the suffering of samsara. So let's set that as our motivation, that this is how, why we'll spend our time together. May this time um, water the seeds that we have in ourselves that can ripen in our Buddhahood. deepen our bodhicitta so that we never separate from the path that wishes to um, become Buddha in order to liberate all beings. Chapter 2 was kind of a long time ago. Um, Venerable Children taught this chapter and began teaching this book in April 2021. Um, And we've come quite a ways in it since that time. So it's good to go back and um, kind of review how we got to Chapter 2 before we get into it. Um, First of all, this book starts with a bang. Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha nature. Venerable said at the beginning, we can't get to Buddha nature until we look at samsara and find our pathway to nirvana. So we're very much going to look at samsara tonight. And then right off the bat, at the very beginning of this book, without much introduction, His Holiness launches us into um, the self, the four truths, and their 16 attributes. (laughs) And then in chapter two, um, we'll go 
into the first of the four truths, knowing dukkha for what it is. So to review, just from the title of the book, what is samsara? You want to say that in the microphone? Body and mind under the control of afflictions and previously created karma. And the cycle of rebirth that occurs as a result of that. The cycle of rebirth that occurs under the control of afflictions and karma. So... um, the Buddha laid this pathway out when he taught the four truths known by the Aryas. And that's where the book begins, right? And so, what are they? What are these four truths? Someone who doesn't usually answer can answer that question. <laughs> okay, someone who does usually answer can answer that question. Thank you. True Dukkha true causes or true origin of dukkha, true cessation and true paths. Yeah, yeah. So to expand that a little bit, so true dukkha. Um, So first we have to recognize uh, what true dukkha is, and that's what this chapter will look at today, and uh, recognize our wish to be free of it. Then when we look at the true origins of dukkha, we investigate and understand the causes of dukkha, which are what? Karma and afflictions, thank you. With true cessations then is the third one, and we realize that dukkha and its causes are not permanent and can be abandoned. And then with true paths, we understand that this abandonment can be achieved by realizing selflessness. Or, in our case, emptiness. Yeah. Okay, let's try some examples. So, true dukkha, as we'll see, there's three types. What are they? Dukkha of pain. Dukkha of change. Pervasive conditioning dukkha. Okay, do we have an example? What is the dukkha of pain? For example... Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, ouch will do. Body and mind, ouch. Dukkha of pain. Dukkha of change. Ice cream. Ice cream is the dukkha of change. Now, how is ice cream the dukkha of change? Seeing it brings instant happiness. And then I want it. And then I eat it. And then I keep eating it, and I feel unwell, and the happiness is gone. That's a good example. Pervasive compounded condition, uh, compounded dukkha. What is an example? The contaminated aggregates produced by karma and afflictions, and the birth, aging, sickness, and death that we experience with that. Yeah, that'll do. And then uh, true origins. What are the true origins of dukkha? I think we just asked that question. Karma and afflictions, right. True cessation, 
What is that? Nirvana is a cessation, but what? Absence of freedom from true dukkha. Yeah. And true paths? Three higher trainings and? Yeah, the wisdom, realizing selflessness. Yeah. Yeah, all those are from our Pramanavartika review, that little series of things. So, so... Uh, it's really good to know these uh, inside and out, forwards and backwards, up and down. When the Buddha laid out this schema, I mean, everything, everything, everything rests on this foundation of knowing these four truths. And then the 16 attributes that are uh, covered in the first chapter. So it is really, really valuable to memorize these to understand their definitions, to know how they relate to each other, to know how they relate. This is the story of our life. How is this list of stuff, these lists of four here and four there and 16 of this, how is that the story of our life? That's really, really important for us to know and to think about every single day, really, every single day in one way or another, um, to know what our path is about. So, um, yeah, so having laid that out, Venerable Chodra noted at the end of the chapter, if you have the book, end of chapter one, she said, and so where do we go next? The photo of a person practicing the Dharma. <laughs> if we really look at these and think about these, then the only solution, the only option for a person who has a precious human life, as we do, to practice the Dharma. So that's where we're going from here. Um, So here's chapter two, revolving in cyclic existence. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit and then I'll do some stuff like Venerable does. So the four truths directly apply to our lives. That's what I just said. They lay out the framework for understanding our situation and our potential. So having a general un- general understanding of them, we'll now go into more depth regarding each truth, beginning with the truth of dukkha, the unsatisfactory circumstances in which we are bound. So these include the three samsaric realms in which we are born, the disadvantages of being born there, and the value of our human lives to reverse this situation. So... In her teaching, when she was laying this out, she said, the spiritual paths help us see things clearly and consciously. So spiritual practice is not going for lofty visions and mystical experiences. You know, we see this often when people come here. We've had some of these conversations this week with with our most recent program that and I certainly had this too before I met the Dharma, this sense that if you feel good or if you have this expansive thing or you know it's why i think why so many religions sing they uplift you and open your heart and open your mind and then you go home and you have a huge dinner you fall asleep argue with your partner and that's the end of your spiritual experience once a week right but this is not what we're doing here it's um understanding the truths that helps us um 
ultimately lead to mind states that we can't even imagine, but it's the understanding of how things exist that leads to our liberation. So it's seeing things clearly, not denying them, um, but also not uh, amplifying the metaphysical, right? Like that. So what is dukkha? Did we say this already? The unsatisfactory experiences of cyclic existence. Dukkha is the samsaric aggregates. Samsara is beginningless, but it is not endless. We have the potential to get off this wheel that's on the cover of this book. And that's an important thing to know. That it's not just the first two truths of um, dukkha and the causes of dukkha, but there's actually a cessation and a path to that cessation. And so even though we're looking at the um, at dukkha today, tonight, that's what we're really focusing on, to always have in the back of our mind that we're meditating on this to deepen our understanding so that we um, are motivated to get out. Because we've been in denial for some time. How do we know? Because we're still in samsara. So looking at it directly, thinking about it deeply, and then following the pathways that the Buddha laid out so clearly to help us understand, we need to know, we need to know dukkha. That's what the Buddha said. We need to know it. And so that's what we'll do some tonight too. So true dukkha is characterized by four attributes. Do you remember what those are? Yeah, in order, in order. Remember? Yeah. Impermanent? Dukkha, selfless, and empty. Impermanent in that they are momentary, right? And so there's also a, um, a wrong conception that this counteracts. What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we think things are permanent. We cling to things as being permanent. We, like Buddha Bear, want our teacher to be here every week. <laughs> but they're not. They're not. Things are momentary, moment by moment by moment. And so this wrong conception of clinging to that which is in the nature of momentariness, to be permanent, causes us a lot of pain. Yes? Can you think of times in your life when uh, clinging to something as being permanent brought you some suffering? Like, can you think of some times today? What happened to that snack that was here this morning? Who ate it? Oh, that afflicted mind that's irritated with whoever came in and ate that thing. I mean, that's a really stupid one, but that's what we do. Every time you look in the mirror and complain about the sad-looking bags under your eyes, <laughs> or the extra little sinking of the belly, or whatever it is that we're clinging to, all of the pain that arises from that is from our misconception of seeing that which is impermanent to be permanent. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. The second one. Things are in the nature of dukkha. What is that counteract? The, I mean, that's the attribute. What's the uh, wrong conception that we do that's not that? Uh, 
Yeah. That there is pleasure in samsara, or that that there is pleasure in the in the in the objects, right? We cling to these objects that are the use of ourselves as to be in the nature of happiness. We think the happiness is coming from them. We think the pleasure is coming from them. That the five aggregates are satisfactory. That's what we're thinking. They are sources of happiness. Yeah, the five aggregates are sources of happiness, and the ob- and the and the objects that's inner and outer objects, right, are source of happiness. Like what? Give me an example. Show me how this acts out in our life. Cookies. Cookies. What? Tell me. Whole story. <laughs> They're actually. <pleasure>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the pleasure is in the cookie. Yeah. It's not coming from me at all. It's actually sitting there on my plate, the pleasure in the chocolate and the milk and the butter in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and then then recognizing this attribute of true dukkha, I mean, yeah, true dukkha, that it's um, that things that are under, things, sorry, that things that are appearing to be pleasurable are in fact in the nature of dukkha. How does that, how does thinking about that change your reaction to the cookie? Mm, so I can see it differently. It's not actually going to give me real pleasure. It's going to fade. The pleasure is actually coming from my side and my mind. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense for people? Yes, no? Adding, subtracting to that? Eating too much. Yes, it leads to stomach ache and worse, diabetes. I mean, <laughs> how, how bad can it get? Yeah, true. Okay. And then, so the third attribute is that things are what? Well, actually, this is the one that's a little bit tricky. That they are empty because of lacking a permanent unitary self. But the um, distorted conception that they're coming up against is that things, we grasp the body particularly to things as being pure, which are not. They're They're actually foul by nature. This one's a little bit trickier to get. But it is, you can ima- you can see how we cling to the body as the source of happiness. Our own bodies as pure, other people's bodies as pure. But, you know, as we learned from Nargarjuna, I believe, who says, you know, you take a shower thinking that you're clean, you're not any cleaner. And you look inside yourself. This is, this is Jeff- that Jeffrey Hopkins version of, uh, of what Nargarjuna said. But we look inside and what is the body actually? It's made of foul stuff. Right, so that's a meditation that we're doing as monastics, probably very regularly, to um, to really uh, let go of our attachments to the body. And then the fourth attribute of true dukkha, that's we're selfless, lacking a self-sufficient, substantially existent. Yes, and what what's the distorted conception that it encounters? Yeah, believing that there's a self here that's running the show. Someone in charge. I love the title of the book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. I actually liked the book too, but the thought that the title is so good that in fact we are there are thoughts without a thinker, but we think we're a thinker. We think we're in control. We think there's a person here who's running, who's in charge of the aggregates. 
And that's a wrong conception. So with all of these in mind, Geshe Kelsing Wangmo has a wonderful quote. that uh, She says, I am an emanation of the truth of suffering and true origin. That's a nice thing to hold in mind. I am an emanation of the truth of suffering and true origin, and the Buddha knows every example of that. How does she, why? She says, I don't feel my happiness is in the nature of suffering. Do you? Do you think your happiness is in the nature of suffering? You do? Always? No. But sometimes. Sometimes. Good. Good. Generally speaking, that cookie, I don't think my happiness is in the nature of suffering. Until I've eaten too many and then I'm sick and then... And then what? Do I think that my happiness is the nature of suffering? No, I blame something else. There's something in the cookie, something in the flour. I shouldn't have eaten that gluten. We don't take ownership of it very much. And furthermore, we think the things that we crave are in the nature of happiness, and this time they're going to last. It's not a deliberate conscious thought, but why do we keep doing it? Because we think the happiness is in the thing and it's going to last. So this is all a part of um, the samsara business that we're messing with. So Venerable uh, His Holiness says, having properly identified our dukkha, it is essential to cultivate the proper attitude toward it. Many of us, when confronted with pain or injustice, respond with anger or self-pity. We try to blame someone else, the cookie, for our misery. Meditating on true dukkha involves taking responsibility for our situation and our problems and dealing with them wisely. And he also says, this is really a good, a good point. We may think that we're already aware of our misery. So there's no need to contemplate it. Do you ever have that thought? I already know what misery is. I don't need to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Although we may be aware of our gross dukkha, we probably are not aware of dukkha's subtler levels. Like the dukkha change. Like pervasive condition dukkha. Until we recognize these, we won't seek to be free of them. And then he says further down, when reflecting on dukkha, keep in mind that understanding dukkha and its origins is just the beginning. The Buddha also taught the last two truths, directing us to the state of genuine peace and showing us the method to attain it. With those, we will have a complete picture. So then there's this quote from Buddha Gosa that I I think is interesting, and I'll tell you why. He says, the truth of dukkha should be regarded as a burden. The truth of origin as taking up the burden. The truth of cessation as putting down the burden. The truth of the path as the means to put down the burden. So that's the person to have. Now, I will say, when I hear this quote, of course, he's from the the, uh, fundamental vehicle, right? I imagine this big sack, this huge, enormous plastic bag. Oh, it's probably like some cartoon character now that I think of it on the shoulder of a person, but it is a person who is me. It is a person who is me who is 
um, carrying the, the burden, who is uh, taking up the burden, the person who is putting down the burden, um, and the person who is doing the practices to put down the burden. And I don't think that's the way we want to hold it. But the, he goes on with this, where he says, the truth of dukkha, he, another analogy, the truth of dukkha is like a disease. This works better for me. The truth of origin is like the cause of the disease. The truth of cessation is like the cure of the disease. And the truth of the path is like the medicine. Yeah, think about that analogy. It's used a lot. But I think it's so very helpful. The truth of dukkha is like the disease. Well, yeah, we're suffering. Mentally, physically, we're ill. The origin is like the cause of the disease. Yeah, we're dealing in the bacteria of uh, afflictions and <laughs> karma. The truth of origin is, uh, the truth of cessation is like the cure. That means remission. That means complete remission. Done. Done. Over. And the truth of the path is like the medicine that we take. And we talk about the Dharma as medicine to relieve us. And so that's what, when we talk about the Dharma as medicine, that's what we're talking about. We're taking the medicine of the Dharma to relieve ourselves of the, if the um, disease of dukkha. Yeah, I like that. So then we go into um, the section on the realms of existence, where I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But I think it's here. I've never seen such a, a kind of thorough, detailed layout. I've seen some charts of these. So we talk about the six realms. We talk about that fairly regularly. But here, His Holiness and Venerable Treasure have laid out this whole list of 33 realms, 33 levels, not realms, Three realms, but 33 kind of levels of existence. Do you remember when Venerable Sangye Kadra was giving a Bodhisattva breakfast corner talk not too long ago? She quoted Ayakema, who said in her book something like, human beings, no big deal, we're fourth from the bottom. Right? We talk about a human rebirth being so high, but really we're fourth from the bottom. So on this list of 33 where we list God realm, God realm, God realm, God realm, God realm, God realm, God realm. Six of the 33 of different levels of gods plus the desire realm levels that we're more familiar with. So we're like, yeah, fourth from the bottom. Not to be too uh, proud <laughs> about being human. Yes, it's true that... It, that we we have human aggregates at this moment because of some virtuous seed ripened at the time of our previous death. And for that, we're very, very fortunate. But not to get too arrogant about being human beings and uh, get puffed up about it, to use it, <laughs> to use it. So um, here, this is what they say about this. As beings in cyclic existence, we are reborn in different realms of existence. A realm is primarily the five aggregates projected by our karma, although it also includes our environment. All of these are considered true dukkha. 
no matter high, how high the god, the deva realm, no matter how subtle their level of um, concentration or even their state of bliss. Here it says these are all considered true dukkha because they're not liberated. They're not liberated. One way of expressing the realms of samsara is the schema of the three realms. So beings in the desire realm are completely immersed in objects that are attractive to six senses. Does that sound familiar? We are in the desire realm. They are obsessed with fulfilling their desire by possessing these objects. This is the realm in which we presently live. The form realm comprises beings who have attained the four levels of single-pointed concentration or meditative stabilization, so the jhanas. And then the formless realm consists of beings in even deeper states of meditative absorption, such that they do not have bodies. While these realms are manifestations of our karma, they are not merely projections of mind or metaphors for states we experience as human beings. We are, when we are born in a realm, it appears as real to us as our present human life and uh, environment appear to us now. So I think in some ways, in some, some kind of modern English Dharma books, it's kind of popular to, to talk about how these different realms c- can be seen or are, really are just states of the human mind, that they're not, quote, real. Um, and I think it, can, and it, it even said here, it can be helpful to think about it in those ways if that helps us give access to understanding a little bit more about what each of these levels of existence is about. But um, to really emphasize that when we are born in the realm, we are taking on aggregates. We're taking on form, unless you're in the formless realm, but we're taking the, the aggregates, of, um, the mental aggregates, of, aggregates as well, that are of that realm of existence. And so our experience is as vivid and clear in the, you know, as a form realm deva or as a hell being as it is right now as a human being. So when we think about these and to meditate on these different levels of existence, um, you know, Geshe Tapke, when he was teaching um, very recently, he was teaching the Kamala Shila text, really emphasized how much we should not just kind of think about these realms, but try it on in our body. Try to imagine how does it feel to be in these different realms of existence. And then think about the disadvantages of each one of those so that that helps to support our wish to be free of them. Because again, that's the point. It's not to sit here and tell us how what a you know rotten condition we're in and to get all depressed about it. The point is to kind of smack us and go, look, we may be used to this. We may think that this is kind of okay. And if we keep eating enough of those cookies, we may get happy eventually. Um, so we need to wake up to our situation and not just our present situation, but where we've been, that we've been born in every one of these realms. And until we get off this wheel of samsara ourselves, our likelihood of being born in any one of those realms is also very high. There's no guarantee that we will get another fortunate rebirth. There's no guarantee that we will get another precious human life. Next, we um, 
are motivated to try to create the causes for that to happen so that we can continue to practice, of course. But the more um, we look at our present situation and the larger picture of cyclic existence, where we've been, where we could go, the more motivated we are to create the causes to get out, to make it make it work. So let's see. Of the 33 realms, I said, so 28 realms or degrees or levels of the devas. There's the form realm. From the highest to the lowest, the desire, form, and formless realms, the um, gods, devas. Then there's the um, asuras or the demigods, we call them. Human beings, hungry ghosts, animals, and hell beings. Sometimes some of those categories are switched depending on, on the writer, but that's basically the, the order that we have. So when we look at this um, expansion into the four realms, we'll just look at them briefly. So the formless realm, this is the highest of the deva realm rebirths. It says, ordinary beings are born in these four realms due to invariable karma, which means that in the immediately preceding life, they attain the corresponding level of meditative absorption, right? So when deep, 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 like kind of, for me, unfathomable meditative concentration um, at the time of death and with that aspiration, they are born in that realm with that mind. Yeah? They lack a coarse body. These beings have only four mental aggregates. They remain in deep states of meditative absorption for eons, experiencing no coarse suffering at all. It sounds kind of nice. However, these states are so subtle and blissful that some meditators confuse them with liberation. And when the karma for these rebirths is exhausted, those beings take rebirth into the desire realm once again, usually as hell beings, hungry ghosts, or animals. So this idea that we can get this meditative stabilization, stability, why? Because they aren't meditating on emptiness, right? They aren't cultivating the wisdom that realizes the ultimate nature, that they are developing these levels of concentration where the mind is so refined and so blissful that it's easy to get can you imagine? I mean, I can't even imagine. It would be so easy to get hooked into that if we didn't have a bodhicitta motivation, if we didn't have this understanding that, that we need to have this under, the, the wisdom that realizes emptiness in order to get out. If we didn't have that foundation, it would be so easy to go into that kind of blissful state and think, I've got it. I'm made. I got it made. And then for a long time, you're in bliss. And then crash right back into a hell realm. What a waste of time. A huge waste of eons. And we've all done it, so they say. So it's important to actually learn about these so that we avoid the pitfall from this happening again. The next level, lower down, um, form realms. There are, I counted these out, Nine? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah. 
And this is in the, um, the different levels of jhanas. Yeah, form realm, four levels with 18 subdivisions that are all based on the levels of concentration. Then the desire realm um, devas that we're more familiar with also has uh, six levels of desire realm devas. It's not just gods. Um, including the god realm of the 30, 33. The reason I'm bringing up the god realm of the 33 is that we uh, talk about it every morning when we do our uh, blessing our feet. <laughs> and it's explained here, the god realm of the 33 is so-called because 33 young people were born there as a result of their meritorious actions. The leader of this group of youths became the Deva Chakra, who presides over this realm and is a devotee of the Buddha. Many devas dwelling here live in mansions in the air. During one rains retreat, the Buddha went there to teach his mother who had been born in this realm. So when we bless our feet every morning um, and we're uh, wishing to have the animals or the, the bugs that might be crushed beneath our feet to be reborn in a deva realm, it's this one, the god realm of the 33. So then we look at the other desire realm beings that again are more familiar to us. So there's here they're called the anti-gods, the asuras, the demigods. Um, so even though they experience great pleasure, they suffer from jealousy and constant battles with the higher desire realm gods that are just above them, that are in, you know, deluxe bliss. These people are, I mean, these beings do have bodies and they are in uh, deluxe bliss. Again, Temporary, temporary, temporary. And I always wonder, because the, the story about the um, desire realm, the demigods, is that the, this um, tree is growing in their realm that is huge, 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 huge tree. And then it has this beautiful, delicious, unbelievably fabulous fruit that falls in the god realm above them. And so the Demigods are always fighting, besides they're jealous of the gods above them, but they're also fighting over whose fruit this is. So they're in a constant state of war. It sounds like a, actually a terrible realm. <laughs> this constant state of war, constant state of jealousy, always fighting with the gods. You don't hear that the gods are fighting back, so I don't know much of, I don't know about that part. But it sounds pretty awful. It is still, however, considered a fortunate rebirth compared to the ones below it. One below them is human beings. Humans have the necessary balance of happiness and suffering that is conducive for Dharma practice. The primary cause for rebirth here is what? Ethical conduct. Good job. Ethical conduct. The next one down, according to the schema, is animals who suffer from hunger and thirst, being enslaved by human beings and being eaten by others. What are some other disadvantages of an animal rebirth? Stupidity. Stupidity, confusion. Any others you can think of? They do continue to kill. Some of them absolutely just by their the, the com biological command are killing. I've been looking at the roly-poly bugs who are eating my pea sprouts like crazy. Just imagining how, how would it be to be a roly-poly bug? And 
I admit I'm a little bit miserly because I imagine that eating those pea sprouts must bring them some level of happiness, and I, I'd like them to save some for me. But, um, yeah, I mean, just imagine. If we, as we watch the um, stink bugs walk across the, the room in the, in the meditation hall during the winter as they're dying off, you know, if they've come inside for rest and watching them, especially in the fall, it's like, where are they going? Do they know where they're going? I often don't want to pick them up and interrupt their path because I think they must know where they're going. But, you know, they're stink bugs. They probably have no idea where they're going. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's very good to think about rebirth as an animal. And then the lower realm below that, hungry ghosts suffer from constant hunger and thirst that is never satisfied. There's also a whole range of types of hungry ghosts um, and I hear there's a new book out that I want to read about it. Uh, I can't remember who's got it out. But anyway, someone who's done a lot of research on the hungry ghost realm. Um, but definitely when we um, think about or meditate on the hungry ghost, that horrible suffering of uh, not a, not being able to eat even if they can find food, not being able to drink even if they can find drink. And um, the cause of that kind of rebirth is miserliness and what else discontent what craving gluttony yeah those kinds of things yeah yeah and then below that the hell beings that experience great physical pain due to heat cold and torture there's so many um oh that new book i was talking to geshe doddle today about that book that i i did a bbc on it this winter on uh, yeah, the book called Hell, Tour of Hell. Whew, really vivid, vivid. Guided Tour of Hell, yes, a guided tour of hell. Really, um, someone's experience of kind of visiting the hell realms. It sounds quite true, quite possible. Um, gives us a good idea of what kind of result comes from our anger and hatred. Yeah. Unethical actions and wrong views are the primary cause for rebirth as a hungry ghost, animal, or hell being. Stinginess is especially affiliated with rebirth as a hungry ghost, while violent activities are associated with rebirth in the hells. Rebirth in any of the six realms is not eternal. When the karma causing that rebirth is exhausted, the being is born in another realm. This next sentence is really important. None of the realms are rewards or punishments. They are all simply results of our actions, of our karma. And again, further down, these realms are actual realms of rebirth. When we can get an idea of life in them by comparing them to some experiences that are... Uh, Oh, we can get an idea of life, sorry, we can get an idea of life in them, in these realms, by comparing them to some experiences that occur in the human realm. And then he goes on to say, seeing the various realms as psychological states can be helpful for recognizing the mental characteristics we have, as I said. For example, the mental state of a hungry ghost is similar to that of a person who goes here and there looking for someone to love them, but is perpetually dissatisfied with every relationship. That's an interesting example, don't you think? 
I mean, we can easily talk about, oh, craving, oh, miserliness, oh, I don't want to give people my cookie crumbs. But when we get down to looking, running around the world looking for someone to love us, mm, I'd say probably a lot of us have had that mind at some time or another. Looking, 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 but perpetually dissatisfied with every relationship. The mental state of a hell being resembles the mind of someone overwhelmed by fear, animosity, and violence. These human mental states could motivate actions that cause rebirth in those realms, but the actual realms are not simply psychological states of human beings. Okay. So then we get into the three types of dukkha. We already identified them. What are they? Yeah, pain, change, pervasive condition, dukkha. The dukkha of pain is the manifest physical and mental pain. We've already talked about that. It includes suffering from heat, cold, hunger, thirst, stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and so forth. So we talk about the dukkha of pain. Venerable often asks this question, do you have more physical pain in your life or more mental pain? Who has more physical pain? Who has more mental pain? I was thinking about this today. It's like, how do we know mental pain is pain? want it to go away and not happen anymore. That's how you know it's pain. So or what is suffering it? Or, what does yeah. it feel like though? I mean, how do you how, how do you know? Uh-huh, peace of mind. And what? Unsettled, unsettled turmoil. Angst. There's lots of good words for that. Sometimes, do you think we have mental pain and it takes a while for us to know it? Yeah. Probably sometimes we have physical pain and it takes a while to know it too. But hunger has that gnawing feeling. You know, the physical pain of a broken leg has a sharp sensation. The mental pain, I think, is um, can be, I mean, it, it overwhelms many, many, most of us. It's our, our pain of choice. But uh, it's interesting to think about which of the two do you think is worse? Mental? Do you agree? Which of the two are you more afraid of? Mental? Yeah? Physical, I hear physical over here. Physical. You know, we think about dying, right? I mean, birth, aging, sickness, death comes along with this whole topic. We think about dying. Do we think about the mental pain of dying or the physical pain of dying? Physical, mental, yeah, both, both. 
Oh, they're good to think about. Really good to think about. Um, Venerable's commentary here when she was talking about things is that the, our problem is that we can't accept our own pain, mental or physical. Especially that our body is not the source of happiness. Because we have this idea that it is. And, and right? Do we not? The food tastes good because we have a body. The touch feels good because we have a body. The sun feels good because we have a body. You know, the garden smells, for those of us that can smell, the garden smells good because we have a body. So just having this body hooks us into these sense experiences. Um, and she said, the more we accept that our body, what our body actually is and what our present mind is, the less suffering we'll actually have. So that's another advantage of meditating on um, and really thinking about what dukkha is. Because the more we know and accept it, the more we, I mean, well, the more we know, the more we can accept it. It's like, oh, this is happening. This is what, um, who was just telling us this story? Was it Venerable Sangye Kadro about um, Geshe Kelsang Wangmo? Just noted that, um, just told a story that when she was first training at um, the dialectic school in, in Dharamsala, she was, I think, the only Western student there at that time. And um, people, her teacher commented that her emotions were just like this and this and this and this, up, down, up, down, up, down. And she noticed that the Tibetans generally didn't have it in the same way that she did. That just culturally, the way we are... Um, conditioned is to get so excited when things are good and really bust and boom, do, 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 when things are not bad. And maybe just because of a thousand years of Dharma being a part of the culture, that, that, that in that Tibetan mind in her view, um, that um, clinging to those experiences was not, wasn't so present. That even yeah, and the awareness of impermanence evened that out, which is um, uh, like overcoming that first. Uh, I mean, looking at that first attribute of uh, Triduka. But it's true that we do that. That's and when we suffer less, when we accept that this is just how it is, and things will change. This wonderful thing is good; it'll change. This terrible thing is terrible; it'll change. Yeah, so Venerable went on to say, one of the reasons of our experience of mental suffering is that we don't accept that things are transitory also. That our bodies age, we die, we separate from our loved ones. Thank you, Buddha Bear. So that we're constantly fighting reality and wanting it to be different. And as she often says, when you're fighting reality, reality always wins. Reality always wins. And so we're exhausted. And it causes us lots of inner turmoil. So the more things we can accept things as they actually are, the more stable our minds will be. So then we go on to the dukkha of change. Second type of dukkha. It's subtler, as Helena says, and more difficult to identify. It includes what worldly beings call happiness. That's us. 
Why is the happiness we experience when eating a good meal, hearing the music we like, or experiencing our sensual pleasures unsatisfactory? He answers the question. If they were truly pleasurable, the more we did them, the happier we would be. However, that is not the case. If we keep eating, we feel ill. Now I ask you, do you believe this? After the fact. After the fact. I mean, I, really, this, even this, this reasoning, oh, if, if this were really true happiness, then the more I did it, the, more I would, the happier I would feel. I heard that for a long time and meditated on it for a long time before I bought it. It's like, okay, it doesn't last forever, but, you know, a little bit of pleasure nice is fine. <laughs> a little bit of pleasure is pleasurable. A little pleasure is, like, nice. So I want to go to, actually I want to go to what Jason Kappa says about this. It is really clear the way he, the way he is. It's a short section, but he called, his, what he says about the suffering of change. Pleasant, feeling ex- pleasant feelings experienced by beings in cyclic existence are like the pleasure felt when cool water is applied to an inflamed boil or carbuncle. As the temporary feeling fades, the pain reasserts itself. This is called the suffering of change and includes not only the feeling itself, but also the main mind and the other mental processes that are similar to it, as well as the contaminated objects which, when perceived, give rise to that feeling. So there's a whole package of things involved here. But the point that he's making here is that this cool water on the boil is in itself just just a little diminishment of pain. It's not pleasure. (laughs) I mean, it is pleasure compared to, you could label it that, but to think that it is, you know, happiness, is just a wrong understanding, really a wrong understanding. So to think that, you know, that cookie that Gyatso wants, that whole plate of cookie that Gyatso wants, is like cool water on a boil or carbuncle. Yeah. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. Anybody have a personal example of a dukkha of change? Yeah. Well, it, it's still dessert. It's not actually a different example yet. But mm. <laughs> I find when I when I get to the dessert table, if if the thought is, well, okay, I'll take this ice cream or the cookie or whatever, and it won't matter five minutes after I eat it, I can easily pass up dessert then. Yeah. If that thought doesn't come to mind, well, I'm going to take the cookie. I'm going to take the ice cream. But when I really kind of see how limited it is, maybe I still want the calories. But other than that, it's it's much easier to pass it up. Yeah, that's really true. And the cookies and the ice cream are good. It's a good example. What about praise? What about appreciation? 
praise. Appreciation is more subtle. What about appreciation? Is that really when I have that little thrill of seeing the smile? Is that like cool water on a car- carbuncle? We have to ask ourselves, because we'll do a lot. I, I, I think I'm not alone. We'll do a lot to get that praise and appreciation, right? We will. Without a good motivation. Right? Any time element, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Well, it, it actually becomes um, either a craving for more or a sometimes false sense of where one is, but there's no, there's no benefit, there's no benefit to it. Doesn't doesn't have any money to it. Doesn't have any you know value to it. No, it doesn't. But are we hooked? Yes. Are we hooked? <sighs> that one. So when we look at all of the um, eight worldly concerns, you know, we all have different levels of uh, different ones that we're particularly have an affinity for. But when we look at our craving for um, comfort, our craving for sense pleasures, our craving for, craving for material gain, our pra- craving for a good reputation, and then this craving for uh, praise and approval. Thinking of getting those, the craving itself is, is bad enough, but then when we actually get it, thinking that that is happiness is really confused if we think about what the dukkha of change is. You know, to identify that praise, oh, that's dukkha. I've actually, just now, am reminded of a situation where I saw venerable children say to another nun who had just given a talk and was starting to get some praise, that is poison. She pointed it out right there. That is poison. That's a good teacher. Right there. It's poison. And we don't want to poison our dharma sharing with that. Right? So, um, yeah, the duke of change. Very important to think about. And then, of course, even more subtle, the duke of pervasive conditioning, he says, is even more subtle, more difficult to identify. It refers to our five psychophysical aggregates, our bodies, feelings, discriminations, miscellaneous factors, and consciousnesses that are unsatisfactory because they are produced by afflictions and karma. The result of our previous samsaric rebirths, our aggregates are the basis for our present dukkha when our destructive karma ripens as the physical and mental pain we experience in this life. So it's what we've just been learning from the 12 links, right? Somewhere, somewhere, somehow, one seed or another got planted in our immediate preceding life at the time of death, craving, grasping, a virtuous karma or ripened, fortunately, this time around. Here we are, we have the five aggregates of a human being, and they are the basis of our experience of the ripening of negative and virtuous karmas. Right, so so these very aggregates, this very this very combo right here, is our um, 
foundation for our dukkha, our experience of dukkha. It is the our experience of samsara itself. And it is the pervasive conditioning because each part of it just feeds the next. We have these aggregates now. We still have karma ripening. We still have afflictions in our mind. We, res- you know, we respond to our environment by grasping at ourself, and that leads us to ha- to have these afflictions arise as we're looking for our own happiness and blah blah, blah and you know, wanting to get away from anything that might harm or give us pain. We act in ways that then leave further seeds on our mind stream. It's like one after another, after another, after another. This is the very basis of how we cycle in samsara. One cause and effect. Effect, then the effect becomes another cause, which creates another result, which becomes another cause. We just feed one after another, after another, after another. Although our bodies and... Huh, what? Go ahead. Yeah. Although our bodies and minds may not experience pain in this very moment, with the slightest change in circumstance, they easily will. They have the the potential to experience horrible pain. Also, our five aggregates propel us to create the causes for more dukkha in the future, future, as he just said more eloquently than I did. By reacting to the pain and pleasure of this life with afflictions such as attachment, anger, and confusion, we again create more karmic causes to to take another samsaric rebirth where we will again experience all three types of dukkha. Let me skip ahead to this beautiful quote from the Tears Sutta, where the Buddha said, The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course of samsara, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monastics, you have experienced the death of a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, son, daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, loss through illness. As you have experienced this, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water of the four great oceans. For what reason? Because monastics, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not disturbed, discerned by beings roaming and migrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monastics, you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience revulsion towards all formations enough to become dispassionate toward them, enough to be liberated from them. So as holiness goes on, while it may be hard to hear initially, unpleasant to hear, the Buddha says this with compassion so that we can act now while we have the opportunity to remedy the situation and free ourselves from such misery. So when we're meditating on our precious human life, and we're looking at the freedoms and fortunes that we have right now, and we're taking them apart one by one by one by one by one, holding this in our mind 
this, more tears than the four oceans in their mind, that this is the opportunity that we have to to, uh, move away from that. That's what's so precious about this existence right now. So in this little last final section, His Holiness reminds us that each of the three types of dukkha is associated with a specific feeling. So he's telling the story again of how this comes about, and it's a good way to end this review. The dukkha of pain with painful feelings. The dukkha of change is associated with pleasant feelings. Because when we initially engage in certain activities or have particular possessions, we feel happy. And the pervasive dukkha of conditioning is associated with neutral feelings because all beings in cyclic existence experience this dukkha even when they are not actively feeling pain or pleasure. These feelings, pain, pleasure, neutral feelings, in turn prompt afflictions. Anger arises easily towards painful physical and mental feelings. Is that your experience? Attachment manifests when pleasurable feelings are experienced. Yes. We crave these feelings, do not want them to cease and cling to the objects that seem to be the cause of them. Oh, that ignorance, right? Happiness is right there. Ignorance increases when neutral feelings are present because we hold the aggregates as permanent when in fact they are momentary. Under the influence of these afflictions, we create karma, And on it goes, round and round and round it goes. So here's the summary. Recognizing pleasant feelings as dukkha enables us to release craving and clinging to them. And as a result, attachment subsides. Accepting that by nature our bodies are unsatisfactory makes it easier to avoid anger or anxiety with respect to painful feelings. Seeing that neutral feelings are transient in nature diminishes ignorance. In this way, although the three feelings may arise, we stop responding to them with attachment, anger, and ignorance, thus reducing the karma created by the afflictions. So, I mean, that lays out the the path, lays out the practice, lays out the problem. And we have to think about it over and over and over and over again. We have to look at the examples in our life. How, what happened when I had this angry response? Why did I have this angry response? What was the feeling that came before it? It's so useful. It's hard to catch. I, I'm still finding it hard to catch, but I find it so useful to see if I can identify. What was the feeling? When did I have that? Um, unpleasant feeling arise. What provoked that unpleasant feeling that then motivated this, um, that kind of blew up into this affliction that motivated this harsh speech or motivated this whatever action I did that I now I'm going to spend time with the Vajrasattva on. 
and really look at how these, how this section right here is telling the story of our life. And then extend it. How is this section right here is telling the story of my previous life? And the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. And how this story right here will keep happening. But now I know some methods to change that. And have confidence in that too. And the more we apply the antidotes, the more we take the medicine of the Dharma and see the result, the more conviction we have that this path is doable, that the Buddha was telling the truth, that um, there is a way out, and uh, the more motivated we are to do it. And it's such a privilege to do it together. Thank you all very much to and all of you too, that right now, right now, we have such amazing conditions. Let's use them well together. Any last thoughts or don't ask any questions? Yes. What exactly are miscellaneous factors? I believe these are referenced to... Miscellaneous, so the aggregates, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can get a list of them. But they're everything that isn't, form, body, feeling, discrimination, and um, consciousness. So all of our mental factors, all of our karma, all of our um, like predispositions for things, it's, I mean, really miscellaneous factors. It's a huge category, actually. <laughs> huge category. Our, the karmic seeds that are there, all of it goes into miscellaneous factors. Um, and that's part of like the package that goes with us and influences our experience. Anything else? Yes. Should we not praise others if that contributes to them getting hooked on it? No! Or is it simply not to get hooked when we receive praise? Yes, yes, yes. It's it's for us not to get hooked when we receive praise. It actually, if it's genuine, if you're manipulating people, then, then pay attention to that. But if you genuinely um, appreciate and value other people, then it's um, it's really a, um, a virtue. It's really good for us to recognize the good qualities in others, and it helps and supports them. Now, I will say... If you have the wisdom to know that someone is totally hooked on praise and is only performing for your benefit, then it's a kindness not to uh, go there. But if you don't have that wisdom, (laughs) praise people. But watch your motivation. Check your motivation. Anything else? Yes. I think it's just the statement that I find um, extraordinary about the pervasive dukkha of conditioning, where it says here, um, the result, nope, okay. Although our bodies and minds may not experience pain at this very moment, with the slightest change in circumstances, they easily will. I think I continually try to remember this because I'm always so surprised when things change. Yeah. And when things go really, really well, I'm happy. But when things don't, and I experience pain, it's this whole idea about, I think the analogy is walking at the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. 
and you're totally copacetic, you're cruising, you're on, you know, cruise control, and then something, a slight change of condition. But karma ripens in that moment and all hell breaks loose. So there's just this tenuousness with this particular dukkha that I'm beginning to pay a little bit more attention to, including not just the external circumstances that might be shifting, but the internal mind that's got some little glitches in it that's starting to make some movement that's going to change my day. Yeah. So this is a really, uh, I've been just focusing more. It's a very tenuous, subtle thing, but it's helping. And the thing about acceptance, you know, sometimes I wonder why acceptance isn't in this list of virtues. It must be somewhere. But this thing about knowing that, learning to have the strength of mind that just says, oh, here's a big wave. Okay. <laughs> okay, I accept this too. Uh, you know, to let to let whatever comes, comes, knowing that that's the nature of samsara itself, and then have the strength of mind to just meet it with as much openness as possible. And it's a powerful practice. Yeah, but acceptance is a big piece of that. Yeah. So, um, Venerable may or may not teach next Friday. Venerable Jigme, I think, is primed to carry on with this chapter. If Venerable is capable of teaching, I'm sure she will. Uh, she will be back, but we'll see how jet lag she is. But the... Um, it's. I think I found very valuable to review this in the context of what we've been doing with the 12 links and to see that this is the foundation, this is the root. It's been over a year since we covered this material, but all of this turning of the, the wheel of samsara that we've been looking at comes out of this. So it's good to go back and look. Okay. <laughs>